Okay. Hello, I am Jamie from Stonemaier Games, as usual, and today I'm joined by a whole bunch of amazing guests who are going to talk about their favorite trick-taking games and a little bit about card shedding and ladder climbing. Um, before we jump into like what trick-taking games are and uh, a quick like honorable mention list, we'll do our top three eventually. Um, why don't we get through everybody and you, you can introduce yourself, your connection to Stonemaier Games, and why you are excited about this topic in particular. Um, we'll go Henry, Pete, and then Mark. Henry, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Henry Seymour. I use they, them pronouns. I've been a member of Jamie's game group for a while, and we play card games. Play, we do play card games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Pete Wissinger. I also play games here in St. Louis with Jamie. And uh, I have been, uh, I grew up with trick-taking games. Um, so spades and euchre were staples among my friend group. And um, I sort of got into the modern trick-taking hobby with uh, Brian Baru when that came out in 2021, because I'm a big fan of area control games. And that sort of reignited that sort of latent trick-taking uh, um, love that I grew up with. And then from there, got into the modern hobby through like uh, Taylor's trick-taking table and stuff like that. So it's now become a, a, a big obsession of mine. <laughs> and that's a YouTube channel. If anyone wants to look up that, I'll, I'll try to remember to put a link in the in the video, but that's Taylor's trick-taking table. It's another YouTube channel where he focuses specifically on trick-taking games. Yeah. yeah, I'd really recommend that channel as well. And Mark? Uh, so I have been tied in with Stonemeyer semi-officially. I became a, an ambassador in 2018 because uh, I, I got a copy of Viticulture and, and Scythe and then very quickly learned, I really love your stuff. And then uh, in 19, I was lucky enough to be put onto the, the Gen Con booth staff uh, working with MeepleSource. And so I've been attached ever since then. Um, as far as trick-taking, I grew up in Northwest Ohio, which means that I played Euchre constantly. Like, I don't even remember when I started playing Euchre. Uh, so between that and playing a lot of hearts, it was just, it was a birthright, basically. Like, you grew up in, in that area. Like, my high school had Euchre tournaments. So I've always been a fan of trick-taking. Nice. I have to thank Mark for bringing up this topic in an ambassador survey a few months ago when I asked if any ambassadors had a topic that they wanted to talk about with me on the YouTube channel. So Mark uh, initiated that idea. And I eventually reached out to Pete and Henry because they are both in my gaming group and they've both been very kind to introduce me to a number of trick-taking games over the last year that I've really enjoyed. That has reignited, similar to what Mark said about, I played a lot of hearts in college. And so these recent games have reignited my, my love of this genre. So I did mention recently on the Facebook Livecast that I was going to talk about this topic in the upcoming future. And so I'll rattle out a couple games that people mentioned on that Livecast as their favorite trick-taking games. Uh, and ladder climbing and uh, and uh, uh, card shedding. So they mentioned Tichu, Fox in the Forest, Ghost of Christmas, Sheep's Head, The Crew, President, Cat in the Box, Scout, Dominoes, 42, Six Nymphs, Gap, Phase 10, Tome, Euchre, Pusoy Dose, Nokosu Dice, Nirvana, Nine Lives, Skull King, Bottle Imp, Shanghai Rummy, Mystery Rummy, or Shanghai Running, Mystery Rummy, Tournament at Avalon, Brian Boru, and Boast or Nothing. We'll see if any of those games show up on our list. Why don't we start out with honorable mentions? And this is the category, category where I think most of us are going to put 
card shedding and uh, ladder climbing games. It's okay if they make it to the top three, but we kind of discussed in advance that maybe we'll talk about them in the honorable mentions. Henry, why don't we start out with your honorable mentions for this uh, overall category? Yeah, for sure. I did uh, keep my top three to just trick-taking, so I've got four honorable mentions, and three of them are card-shutting games. The one trick-taking game I have in the honorable mentions is Peter's Two Sheepdogs, which is a very strange Japanese two-player trick-taking game combination with Mancala, really interesting. Um, Maskman from Oink, I think is brilliant. It's a deck of different suits of cards, and you determine it, the relative strength of those suits as the game is going. Um, Bridge City Poker, a game of building out different, uh, essentially poker hands that you're shedding out. Um, the, there's a lot of different power cards in the game that make it interesting as you continue drawing from the deck. And the last one is of what's left, this you can play with a standard deck, is one of my favorite games I have ever played. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's free on Board Game Geek. You can play with as many players as you have suits. It's brilliant. We need to play that one sometime, Henry. For sure. That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you for your honorable mentions. Uh, Pete, what are your honorable mentions? <laughs> okay. So my favorite card game in general is Haggis by Sean Ross, which is a climbing shedding game. It's my favorite two-player game ever. Um, it's really good. Uh, there's also, he made a similar game that's a team-based game called Bacon, which is coming out from All Play. And this one is about to be on Kickstarter reprinted um, from Portland Game Collector. You can um, play Haggis on BGA. You can play Haggis. I've played a lot of Haggis on Beach. I am very bad at it, but it's very good. <laughs> yeah. um, my favorite hybrid trick-taking game that I didn't put on my list because I kept like strictly card games on there is Jiraku. Um, area control is my favorite other mechanism, and Jiraku is an amazing combo of area control and trick-taking. And then lastly, I've got two recent ones that I just got this year, which could end up being near the top of my list at some point. Um, and these are Aurum by Shreesh Bot and Tricky Time Crisis by John Barron. These actually, uh, amazingly, are both must-not-follow trick-taking games. Uh, it's crazy that this year two amazing must-not-follow trick-taking games came out, but they're both really great, and uh, they're both available now. Some of the stuff I'll talk about is a little bit harder to find, but these you should be able to easily get your hands on. Awesome. Thank you, Pete. And what about you, Mark? Uh, so I have uh, a few as well. So the, the first two, like I already mentioned, are Euchron Hearts, uh, standard deck of cards, hooray, uh, because they're, they're classics, they're great, uh, but it's, they're both those games that unless you are playing with people that don't know it and you're new to it, you're going to have a bad time because people just get so intense about their trick-taking games. Uh, as an alternate to hearts, and I don't have any more, uh, Restoration Games did a copy of um, uh, Indulgence. And Indulgence is essentially hearts with special powers, which is very interesting. Um, to go off of what Pete was saying, Sean Ross is just a phenomenal trick-taking designer. Um, I actually picked Vidrasso for my list. Uh, it is another two-player. I, I prefer it. It's interesting because you have a row of what are called straw men in front of you. So essentially half of your hand is open and half of your hand is actually held. Um, it can be played with a standard deck of cards. It's on BGA. Really, really great game. 
Um, and then the last one is called Eleusis, which is more of a, a card shedding game. And it is, again, you're actually going to use a couple decks of cards. Um, and it's almost like Zendo as a card shedding game where one person acts as God and you have whatever rule in place and you're trying to shed your cards out to match that rule. And if you match it, you get to shed the cards. Otherwise, you have to draw them back up. Um, there's a really great video that Shut Up and Sit Down did about it that if you want to know more about it. Eleusis can go a little long, uh, and if people are being a little obtuse at the rules, can be a little sideways, but otherwise, it's a really, really cool game. Can you spell that one, Mark? I don't, I, I don't think I've heard of that one. Yeah, I believe it's E-L-U-S-I-S. Eleusis, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Now, I realize before we jumped into this, we should have, I, I, in terms of accessibility, for people who don't know what trick-taking, card-shedding, and ladder-climbing are, we probably should have defined them. And I think you three are well-equipped to define them. So, um, Henry, why don't you pick one of those and define it? And then, Pete, you can, yeah, you can uh, choose one I'm of gonna, those. Yeah, I'm going to not pick trick-taking because defining <laughs> that is a little harder than I think it would immediately be apparent. Um, ladder-climbing and shedding kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. A shedding game is a game where everyone has cards and the winner is most often going to be the person who can get rid of all of those cards first. Ladder climbing means in that context, when I play some of my cards onto the table, someone else can beat that combination by playing a stronger hand of cards. So essentially you're climbing a ladder of increasing strength of cards. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. so trick taking, if I'm going to define it, you know, it's kind of one of those things that um, if you grew up playing them, it's like the most obvious and simple mechanic. But when you try and play one of these games with someone who's never played or never grew up playing them, um, it all of a sudden becomes really strange to try and explain what it means. Um, but what I think of it is there's a contest in the middle of the table called a trick, and everyone's going to play usually one, but it depends on the game, a card into the trick, and one player will win the trick. Usually it is the highest card Oftentimes you have to play the same suit as someone led. Sometimes there's a trump suit. Um, but in general, the winner of that contest collects all those cards and makes a little pile of cards, and that is a trick. Um, this isn't always what it means, but I think that that's a fairly simple definition. And the difference between that and a climbing game is usually in a climbing game, you can only play into the contest if you can beat what's on the table. Whereas in a trick-taking game, everybody plays in for the most part. Yeah, I think for me, trick-taking is one of those things where it's like, if I see it, I know it, but then actually trying to like spell out explicitly what it is, is more difficult. Mm -hmm. I, the thing that trick-taking is, it's really going through a renaissance right now, because for a long time, you had your your standard 52-card deck games. You heard the crazy people that were, you know, bridge players or, or whatever. Uh, but what's been really interesting, and it's what Pete was just talking about with Orem, is we are seeing this idea of trick-taking plus something, but we're also seeing trick-taking adapted into other things, like in Brian Boru, or if you've played uh, Dice Town or uh, Western Legends. Tricks are all over those as well, and you don't even really have to know trick-taking to understand, oh, we're playing card suits to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great segue into, um, well, I'll do my, my honorable mentions real quick and then uh we'll do our top three but i bet a lot of games that you described will fit into our top three um my honorable mentions are the crew 
I love the escalating nature of the crew as we work through multiple missions. Nirvana, Henry introduced me to Nirvana. I love Nirvana. This is a game where you are, it's a, like a half a roll and write game where you are creating numbers, you're creating cards, and then you play a shedding game with those cards you've created. Yeah, I think Henry got that from Essen last year. Is that right, Henry? Yeah. Um, Twinkle Starship, a recent one that Pete introduced to me, is one, a game with digital numbers on cards, and you also get little segments where you can change those digital numbers to make them better or worse, depending on what you're going after in the game. And if you win hands that include those little segments, those segments are worth points as well. St. Patrick, a game with a really clever um, and kind of freeform bidding mechanism that I really, really like. Tall Tales, another one that Pete very recently, oh no, that Henry very recently shared with me that I really enjoyed. Uh, Joraku that Pete mentioned. Hearts, played that all the time in college. Oh, there's there's Tall Tales from, with Henry. Uh, Trick Taker is one that kind of blew my mind when when uh, Pete shared it with me, the amount of asymmetry and different things that you're going after in Trick Takers. And then Scout and Wizard. Wizard, maybe a couple of years ago, might've been on this list, but a game similar to Wizard has overtaken it from my list. Wizard was your number two last time. Number two, okay. So yeah, close. And for any of those, any of those could be my number three, but I picked a, I picked a different game for my number three. Let's jump into our top three. Henry, you want to lead us off with your number three? Yeah, for sure. So my number three is Mori. This is uh, from the newest All Play collection. Uh, Pete mentioned Bacon is also in that same set of games from All Play. Mori is a game that uses both cards and dice for its trick taking. It's got a really interesting uh, kind of rock, paper, scissors, trump system where there's four different suits and each of the suits trumps another one of the suits. Um, the last interesting thing about Mori is it's a lot of times a trick avoidance game. A lot of the cards have negative points on them, so you don't want to take those cards. And everyone has these pass cards. And whoever collects the most of those pass cards gets a negative point for each one of them. But whoever has the second most pass cards gets a point for each of them. So it's real kind of push your luck as you're trying to collect these, but force someone else to have like just one more than you do. Hmm. That sounds clever. Yeah, I'm excited really to get that, that one. one. Yeah, I backed the Kickstarter. It's not Maybe. out yet. <laughs> awesome. Pete, what's your number three? Well, you mentioned it. My number three is Trick Takers. Mm -hmm. um, so this one really is a special game. Um, from Japan, I first heard about this on the Trick Talkers podcast, which if you're also into trick-taking games, that podcast is great. Um, it is currently only available in Japan. However, this month, Portland Game Collective is putting it on Kickstarter with an English uh, rulebook. And uh, the reason that uh, this game sort of sounded good to me on the podcast is they said that it is like Root, the trick-taking game. Uh, okay. And Root's my favorite game. And so the way they described it just sounded amazing. And so I, I got it. And yeah, it's bonkers. Um, so this is a game where uh, every player, after getting their hand of cards, chooses a, a role to play, um, which has totally asymmetric powers. Um, you're all still playing a standard trick-taking game, but you have your own ways to mitigate the luck of the card play, your own incentives of how many tricks to win. Um, it's just really exciting uh, and goofy. Like just the moments in this game, the way that the different characters interact sometimes is so crazy um, that sometimes you have to like stare at the trick for a minute to try and figure out who actually won the trick. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it can be kind of, you know, frustrating when, you know, all this crazy stuff is happening, but the game is so short and so fun 
Um, and there's a lot of rules, but if you've got a table of people who are willing to sit there and, and work through it, I think it's one of the most rewarding and unique trick-taking games that exists. So that's my number three, Trick Takers. It's by Hirokin. And look out for the Kickstarter from Portland Game Collective, which also includes a Haggis reprint that's going to be this month. One particular thing I want to highlight about this is that unlike Root, not that this isn't a bash on Root at all, but in Root, you have a, you have your faction for the entire game, which is fun. You get to know that faction really well. But in Trick Takers, that asymmetry changes all the time throughout the game. So if you, it's not like a game where you have to wait to the next game to try a unique ability. You just, you can grab it for the next round and try that unique ability, which I thought, I thought was a lot of fun. Yeah, another thing I'll say that I really like about this is if you have like a bad hand, that just means you have to pick the right character to use that hand, right? Because yeah. sometimes in trick-taking games, people are like, oh, well, I got a bad hand. But in this, like, there's no bad hand. It's just a matter of picking the right character to fully utilize that hand. I really want to try that now too. I'd, I'd heard of that one in passing, but I didn't realize that it was Japan only right now. So I'm, I'm going to look for that Kickstarter. Yeah, it's got a lot of Japanese text. I actually made player aids um, to hand out to everybody when we play it because there's a ton of Japanese text in the game. So uh, definitely recommend holding off for the Kickstarter rather than grabbing a Japanese copy. <laughs> Mark, what's your number three? Uh, so on that, I think it's interesting that we're talking about a lot of Japanese designs because I feel like Japanese trick-taking is just a huge, really cool portion of the hobby. Um, so I picked Yokai Septet. Um, I really like Yokai Septet at four players. It works fine at three, uh, but essentially you have seven suits that each have seven cards, and in the middle of or somewhere in its range is a seven. And the goal of the game is to win four sevens before winning seven tricks. So you play on two teams in the four-player mode. And so long as you get those four sevens between the two people, then you're going to score a number of symbols on the sevens themselves. Every round, uh, one of them is going to become the trump suit. And if you win the seven of that trump suit, you're not actually going to score points for it. So it's an interesting balance of, do I want to just try and take that one so that way I just have one done? Or do you want to try to push to always score points? But the the balance of it is really interesting because your opponents have the same opportunity to win four sevens, but they can also see like, oh, I can just feed cards and make sure they lose, or rather they win too much, which means they lose a we score the points. So it's a really dynamic game that allows you to change your strategy as the the round is going and one of the really nice things on the cards is that it'll actually show you on the side here's the range of the cards this is where this particular card is in that range so you always are able to understand okay if i play this here's my odds of getting beaten essentially so it's a really really cool game Eden and I actually played that two-player recently, and the two-player mode felt very different than the, the three- or four-player game, but I really liked it. It felt a little bit like Seven Wonders Duel meets Yokai Septet because it combined like the yeah. overlapping card mechanism and reveal of cards that you have in, um, in Seven Wonders Duel. I, is that the the two-player game is not officially in the box. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it's on Board Game Geek. It's actually Sean Ross designed the two-player game. Oh, right. uh, and it has that straw man mechanism that you said you like in Vidrasa. Yeah, Vidrasa, yeah. Cool. yeah. And if you want to play Yokai Septet, there's a free app called Trickster's Table. 
that you can play Yokai Septet against AI players, and that works very well. Is the AI smart? <laughs> it it's an AI that's essentially like trained against itself, and so it's actually it can play pretty competently. It's also on BGA now. Yes. So. Oh, cool. Uh, and just because Peter mentioned Kickstarters, uh, I know this was made by Ninja Star Games. It was put out in 2018. Uh, they did a reprint of it in 21, I think. And it backed in like February and I had it in my hands in July. So I know it's kind of hard to get a hold of, but if Ninja Star ever does another Kickstarter for it, like they are on point with getting it. So I think you can get it on their website, actually. Can so. you? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Mark, for that pick. My number three, the one that probably could have been multiple games from the honorable mentions, but when I really thought about it, this is the one that I'm itching to get back to the table the most, is Jekyll versus Hyde. So it fits into this nice subcategory of two-player specific trick-taking games, some of which are cooperative, like the recent Sale or Fox and, For Fox and Force Duet. Some are competitive, and that is very much the case in Jekyll versus Hyde. This is one of the games that I played with Henry, where I loved it so much that we switched roles and played right again, again. Um, because in Jekyll versus Hyde, the Jekyll player over three rounds, the Jekyll player is trying to make sure or try their best to have uh, both Jekyll and Hyde, both players, win the same number of tricks. Whereas the Hyde player, and if I get this wrong, feel free to correct me, but the Hyde player uh, is trying to uh, create the biggest variance between tricks. They're either trying to win a lot or not win many at all. Um, and that kind of moves the players on a tug of war track. I love tug of war in games. Um, and so the the tension is right there, like you 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 are you are right there in the midst of the, midst of the game right away. There's there's not even really any buildup. Like everything is happening right from that very first trick, um, and you can even win early in the game because of this tug of war element. You don't necessarily have to play all three rounds if you if you win early. But I love the tension of the game. I love the the both the roles in the game, and this is the only one that I I'm going to talk about today that I don't own, but I need to. I'm going to buy this game uh, very soon so I can play it with Megan. It's a brilliant set of competing. Uh desires for each player because they're inherently contradictory and it's not just we each want to win like a different type of trick or something like the the goal of i want to win a lot or none and i want us to win the same amount are such brilliantly interlocked sets yeah it's also just way too pretty of a production for really what it deserves <laughs> it is that old <laughs> marker just way too nice yeah that's my favorite two-player trick-taking game by far Nice. Well, Henry, what is your number two? Yeah, so my number two is Nine Lives from Taki Shinzawa. That's a designer that's come up a couple times now. Uh, Jamie mentioned Twinkle Starship. I had Maskman. Uh, he designs primarily almost all trick-taking games, and I, I find almost all of them very interesting. Nine Lives, uh, in the deck of cards, all, each suit is on printed on the back of the card so you know exactly how many of each suit everyone at the table has but not what strength those different cards have um the oh the other interesting thing about nine lives is whoever wins the trick gets to take a card from that trick back into hand and so there can be times that i've like short suited myself out of green cards but then I like pick up another green card and I come back into having a suit. And so you get these really interesting trick-taking interactions that you would not have in other trick-taking games. And that also means you don't know exactly when the round will end, right? Because people are- Yes. Yeah. I, so I picked up uh, Ghost of Christmas 
at Gen Con. And it was interesting because you, uh, Darian, and uh, Dave all saw that I picked it up. And everybody was hands down very excited about it. And I know he did the same one as Nine Lives. Yeah. There's some interesting split on Nine Lives amongst that group. So I, I really want to try it. But it's uh, it's interesting. I very strong reactions that game causes. I I really like Ghost of Christmas as well. For me, Ghost of Christmas is one of those games that I think is more interesting than it is fun. But I like I own it. I play it a lot. But it's a it's such it's such a punishing game that a lot of times when I'm playing, I'm playing it more to like see how different interactions will happen. Where nine lives, every time I play, we all have like a great time with it. Yeah, I really like the bidding system in that one. The way you kind of like block other people out from like certain bids it's, that you can't it just almost all has bid like the same worker thing. placement for yeah. the bidding. Yeah. Well, thank you, Henry. What about you, Pete? What's your number two? Well, my number two is the highest ranked trick-taking game on Board Game Geek. So I'm not super unique here, but it is The Crew Mission Deep Sea. It is up there for a reason. It's my favorite co-op game that I've ever played. And um, it is just such a satisfying uh, cooperative trick-taking game. The it, I, I see it as a just almost 100% a replacement of the crew Quest for Planet Nine. Like, I probably will never play Quest for Planet Nine again because I have Mission Deep Sea. Um, the missions are just so unique. Uh, they'll have you do crazy things like one player has to win the first three tricks and one player has to capture a six with a six. And um, what I love about the game is the limited communication which makes this game incredibly difficult to play with people who aren't familiar with trick-taking games, but so satisfying for people who do know trick-taking games because every card somebody plays is communication. If you know how to read the cards, count cards, know the table, um, the missions in it are really neat. How, uh, you know, there's like a campaign book like the original crew. However, a great innovation of this one over Quest for Planet Nine is that the missions themselves have difficulty scaling by player count. And so you don't even have to do the mission logbook. You can just say, we're playing high difficulty, grab as many missions as you can, and just replay it over and over. It scales super well. In fact, just yesterday, my friend Matt and I, who doesn't live in the same town as me, uh, played this at two-player on BGA, and we just played 15 missions in a row. Like, we just we're just going, going, going. And when you get in a groove, it's so satisfying. And those missions scale up in difficulty in a way that it gets so crunchy um, that for me, if I've got a table full of people that were just kind of like between games or at the end of the night want to play something quick, um, I would I often want to just bust out the crew, do a couple hands of that because um, it's just super satisfying. It's a table of people who all know trick-taking games really well. I, I think I'll go for it. I think what you're mentioning there of like the crew mission deep sea with is I always grab that if I've got a table full of people that know trick taking, but the only reason it hasn't completely replaced it, you can see I still have both of them right there, is I think the original crew does a better job of teaching how trick taking works to people who have never played a trick taking game before. The missions in deep sea are much more interesting across the board. But the way that the original crew teaches, like the missions start out so simple and then ramp up, does a really good job of kind of like getting, putting people in the shallow end of trick taking and they can build up those skills that then we can start playing Mission Deep Sea. 
So it's interesting. I actually am sitting in between both of you on that. Um, I So if I, I intentionally didn't uh, pick games that Jamie had as those last time, otherwise Mission Deep Sea would be on my list. Uh, but I actually routinely use it to teach new people trick-taking because at the beginning, when you use the logbook, it's flip one card. It's pretty easy to understand that one card. And then once a person has gotten a hold of it, that's when you can sit there and just flip off. Okay, we're going to do four missions this time. Uh, so it's, I found that it works better than Planet Nine because it doesn't have those, uh, you have to do this one first and this one second layer that the that one has. Deep Sea is just, here are the missions, do them. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a phenomenal game and it's so easy to to both play with experienced people because then you can go purely silent or if you're teaching somebody it's okay so here's what we're trying to do and then you can grow off of that mark do you want to segue that into your number two pick sure uh so my number two is probably the oldest one uh easily the, that we've talked about so far and that's the bottle imp so i really love thematic games and the bottle imp is based on a Robert Louis Stevenson short story. You can go find it on Gutenberg Project. It's totally worth the read. Where somebody has gotten a hold of this bottle. And the bottle will grant any wish without any penalty whatsoever, so long as you're holding it. But if you die in possession of the bottle, your soul is damned. So the goal is that you have to sell the bottle off, but you must sell it to somebody for less than what you paid for it. And that's the only trick on it. So if you try to throw it away, it'll come back, whatever. Like you can't destroy it, you must sell it. And so that's the way the trick taking works is that it is a simple deck of 37 cards and the starting bid for the bottle is 19. The first person who plays uh, the highest card under that, that sale level will end up taking the bottle. And so at the end of the round, uh, if you are in possession of the bottle, you actually don't score any points. Instead, you're going to lose points that you've put into the bottle at the start of, of each hand. Um, and so what's really interesting about it, it is a must-follow game. So if somebody leads red, you have to follow with red. But if you don't, then that's the interesting part of, okay, how do I sneak in getting rid of my one or my two, my really low card, so that way I don't have to buy the bottle, but I'm also not stuck with it because, ah, I have the one in my hand. So it, it creates some really interesting dynamics of trying to read the table. Um, this is also my choice for three-player trick-taking. It's fine at uh, four, it's okay at two, but at three, where that bottle is constantly passing around, it's some really interesting choices of where do I want to try and burn my high card where I know I'm going to score a bunch of points versus trying to get rid of my lower one so that way I don't get stuck with it. It's a really cool game. We need to try that one. Peter, Henry, have you played that one? I have, yeah. I uh, I quite enjoy Bottle Imp. Yeah, it's on my list. I've not played that one. Super worth it. The The version I showed is the popcorn games from Korea. Yeah, that's the pretty one. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so what's interesting is the box is much prettier, but the cards are the exact same as the uh, Stronghold version. So it's literally just go buy the, stone, the Stronghold one and you're fine. <laughs> I've found with trick-taking games that um, I either play ones that have a clever hook 
like the bottle limp hook that you just described, but clever hook, because I want to introduce it to a lot of people. I want to show people this hook or their games that I just want to play one more hand or one more game of one more, one more mission in, in, in uh, the crew. Um, and so this one, my number two is cat in the box. This is one that has that hook, but that hook being that the cards don't have suits on them until you declare the suit of a card. So as I'm playing a five value card, I'm, I'm saying based on what I want that round, based on my, maybe my bid, there's a spatial element of the board, a few different elements of like that, and the desire to not have a paradox so not be put in a situation where I cannot play a card. Um, I'm declaring the color of that card at that moment. I'm saying, oh, this is a, this is a blue five. This is a red five, whatever I want it to be at that moment. And I love the silliness of that paired with those other decision points that you have to make. Like what is, what is best for the spatial element? What is best so that you can continue to play out your whole hand and not have to paradox? Um, what is best for the bid that you place for this round? So I love that hook. I love that silly hook paired with the, the fairly serious, deep decision space the game offers. Um, so Cat in the Box is my number two favorite trick-taking game right now. I think Cat in the Box, of all of the games we've mentioned so far, can have some of the funniest conversations over the game. Just like yeah. referring to suits when the cards don't actually have suits on it is consistently a funny joke to me when we're playing that game. Well, in many games, like we, we mentioned being short-suited in, in tricking games, which is a strategy you can pursue. This is a game where you decide when you want to be short-suited. And so you might say something like, oh, I, I don't have any red cards left in my hand even though you, none of the cards actually have colors. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the joys of trick-taking is after every round, it turns into, okay, why did you play that way? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what trick-taking game I play, it always leads into some conversation of how it happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Cat in the Box is one of my favorite ones, like you said, Jamie, to like show people. To be like, oh, you've played trick-taking games before? Take a look at this, right? Yeah. Because it's just such a clever hook um and yeah it's great i think i will say i'm the sole one out on this i think cat in the box is really interesting for its idea but i think it's overcomplicated for what it is that mm. i i love very control games as well but the idea that it is a bidding trick-taking game which i'm already not a huge fan of then you have the area control it's it feels like it's trying to do more than what I want it to. Like, it's a beautiful production, but I I want another game to use it without all the extraneous parts. Are there any tricking games that where the cards have suits but not numbers? Uh, Mask Men is not trick-taking, but you've got a deck of cards that's just only suits and no ranks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there, yeah. there is an all-play game coming out uh, called Lunar that I really want to try, where you're playing a pair of cards to the trick, where one is the value and the other is the suit. Okay. So beyond that, I can't think of any. Yeah. The really interesting thing about Lunar as well is it's a partnership game. So if Pete and I were partners, if I play a rank, then Pete has to play a suit. And that determines like the card that our team played into the trick, essentially. I really want to try that one. That's cool. It's fun. Well, let's get to our number ones. Hey. Yeah. So my number one trick-taking game is Ebbs by Klaus Geis. Um, this, I believe you can still get Ebbs from his Etsy store, but the game is being reprinted as Hund. It's got a dog theme on it now. Um, the main twist of Ebbs is that there are five different suits in the deck, and you will determine what each of those suits are throughout the hand. So 
each round there's a magic number. So let's say it's five. The first time we see a five, that suit is going to be the trump suit. The next five we see will make all of the cards in that suit positive points. The next five we see will make all of the cards in that suit negative points. And so as you're going on, you're determining more and more pieces of information about the suit, but you're actually taking tricks the entire time that that's happening. So I might have taken a bunch of yellow cards, but the yellow five hasn't shown up yet. So then like, as soon as we've determined a trump suit and a positive suit, then someone plays the yellow five, and now all of these tricks I've taken are now worth negative points. And so it's a really interesting game of trying to make the hand that you have be uh, have the suits it at the different ranks that you want them to be. That sounds mind bending. When did that come out? Uh, I do not know off the top of my head. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I've never played that one, but I would like to. You guys will uh, like, we'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 2013 is when Ebbs originally came out. That Hund version is coming out later this year. Awesome. Well, thank you, Henry. Uh, Pete, what is your number one favorite trick-taking game? So my number one is a really mind-bending one. It's also impossible to find right now, uh, and that is Nokosu Dice, or I think it's pronounced Nokus Dice. Um, it means leftover die is what it means in, in Japanese. Um, this is one that I, when people ask me, like, okay, so you're into trick-taking games? Like, show me the best one. This is the one I pull out, right? And uh, this one is unique in that uh, it comes with dice that are colored, and they're the same colors as the cards in the deck. And it's got a drafting mechanic where you're going to draft dice, um, and those dice count as cards in your hand. So if you have a green die with a one on it, that's a green one. And uh, there's a couple of amazing twists on it. Like, that already is crazy that you have dice that are cards, right? You could go on and just play that, and that would be a really cool game. Uh, but it's got a couple of other twists that really sort of wreck your brain. Um, there's going to be one die left over from the draft. That die sets which color uh, is the trump suit. And it also sets which number is the trump number. And so if there's a green one left at the end, green is the trump suit. And all the ones are the highest cards in the game. They're this special super trump suit, just all the ones. And... Um, that's also really wild. Um, and then the last part, which is my favorite twist in the game, is that you're going to play until you only have one of your dice left, and then you can't play that die. That is your leftover die. And that die is your bid. And so you get one point per trick, but you get a lot of points if you hit your bid. And um, it is a game that when you first play it, you're like, that sounds impossible. <laughs> sounds like I have no control over my bid. But actually, you're bidding as you go because you're choosing when to play those dice and hoping someone doesn't force you to play the die you have left. You're going to draft dice to give you sort of an array of options and then hope that at the end, you've played until you only have that one die left. And it's so satisfying when you hit your bid. It almost feels like you pulled off some sort of magic trick when you've got three tricks and that three die in front of you. It just feels so good. You can also shoot the moon and bid nil, but you have to announce that at the beginning. What I love about the game is that you bid as you go because you don't know exactly what your bid's going to be until you only have one die left. However, you announce if you're going nil because um, you have to discard one of your dice. And so then everyone's trying to feed you a trick. And that also feels really good to pull off 
Um, it's just, it's crazy. Um, I know it's getting a reprint for Essen, and I'm hoping that it gets a bigger reprint because this is uh, the only one that I've mentioned that doesn't have a US release already happening or coming. So fingers crossed, someone's going to pick it up. They have to, it's so good. This yeah, one's the dice is very long time. I have got almost certainly Mark? in my top five. Have Mark, you played this one, Mark? I, no, I haven't gotten to. I, yeah. I remember uh, Z on the Dice Tower talked about it yeah. years ago, and I have been fascinated by it ever since. But it's, like you said, it's impossible to track down. And the people that like it, like, love it. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people proxy it because you just need cards and colored cards and dice. So I think it's easy enough to proxy um, for pretty cheap. But yeah. The curiosity, yeah. How, how does the game handle essentially a bad dice roll? You get all ones and twos. Well, so you never um, actually roll the dice. All of the dice are ruled in one pool, and then we're all drafting from that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea there is that if you only draft dice with ones and twos, you better hope that somebody tricks you in. But, but, you know, you're looking at your hand of cards when you draft the dice. So you're intentionally drafting dice that you think are going to result in a bid that goes with your hand of cards. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. God, I, really I think the one thing about this game that, like, the game has those two elements where you're, the, the, the bid, like you're waiting to have your last dice and that becomes the bid. But it also has the last die remaining from the draft is the, like the Trump suit and Trump number. I, I, I kind of wish that were determined before the draft because the draft feels somewhat random without having that information going into it. I kind of I get why they did it, but my brain wants like some set points, some anchor things before I make my decisions. And because they have two of them in the game, it's a little bit too much. The designer knows yeah. way more than what I know that what I'm doing with trick-taking, but I, I, I yeah. I, I think, think for does... me... Go on, Henry. I, I think for me, the knowing that the one die left from the draft will be the Trump suit and Trump number is a lot of times I'll be using that to pick which dice I'm drafting, where if I'm like, I don't have any green cards, I'm going to grab green dice out of the pool to make sure there's no chance of that being a die that's left mm. over. And so it the knowing that that is there's going to be one left over, I use that as a, a lot of the source of my decision making during the draft of eliminating options from that pool. I was going to say it's also a good reason that you tend to play these games once around per player, because the first person in the draft has very little information, but the last person in the draft has a lot of agency because there's two dice left. That last person is choosing the trump. And so if you play once per player, everyone's going to have a chance to be in that last hammer seat in the draft. Well, Mark, what is your number one favorite game in this genre? So, like I said, I intentionally didn't pick anything you did before, Jamie. So Brian Boru would have been really close to being my number one. Uh, but we are still going to have a crossover because my number one is Jekyll versus Hyde. Uh, I this is my favorite theme like I love this story again it's Robert Louis Stevenson so say what you will about that um, but like you said it is one player who is intending to try and win as many as they lose they are trying to win and lose five each because each each hand or each round is ten tricks and all Hyde has to do is just throw it off and that's it 
And over three rounds, if Hyde can force a variance of 10, they win. And the, the joy of the game is that it's called the return mode where one person plays Jekyll and then you play again and the other person plays Jekyll. And it's whoever is able to force Jekyll to lose earlier wins the, the return match. Uh, one of the things that is fascinating about this, because we've, we've mentioned a lot of games and that's one of the joys about trick-taking, but trick-taking is normally pretty dry, pretty abstract. This one is to its theme in everything. Because one of the other things uh, you didn't mention is the trumps get decided as the cards are played. And so if you are playing uh, green, which is the greed suit, then you're actually going to uh, force a switch. So you're trying to take stuff away from somebody. If you are playing the pride suit, you're saying, hey, I'm just going to steal one of your tricks because I know what I can do. And Wrath just says, I'm going to reset the whole board. So there's some really really interesting choices the the dynamics of especially that second half of okay how do i make sure i play better than i did before or alternatively if you want as jekyll how do i just hold um and then you mix in that that really strong thematic tie it's it's beautiful it's vincent detroit art like i said this this little piece which is double-sided with the face of each character the production on this is insane. The gameplay itself, for as interesting and as tense as it is, is 20 minutes, maybe 30. And that's playing both sides. It's just phenomenal. Like I, I am very excited to try the co-op version because that's a campaign scenario game coming out at Essen. But boy, I have a hard time finding a trick-taking game, especially a two-player, that I like more than this one. Yeah, I just want to say another thing I really love about that game that we haven't mentioned is that you pass cards between you and your opponent, and it gives so much information as the hide player because the hide player is like, I'm going to give you cards, and so you know if I'm giving you low cards, I'm trying to win tricks, or you know if I'm giving you... But then there's this funny bluff element where you can try and trick the Jekyll player where you're like, oh, you think I'm going to try and win tricks, and you win a couple, and all of a sudden you're like losing them and dumping them, and they haven't been playing their hand that way, and so you can feel really sneaky and clever as the hide player. I think a lot of people like playing Hyde better than playing Jekyll because you kind of feel like you're steering the game as Hyde. I really like it as Jekyll because that that tension of can I, you know, thread this very narrow line, uh, especially because one of the interesting choices based on that card pass is do I short suit myself? Do I only want to play in two suits? Because if I am, then chances are I'm not going to have the strongest suit. So it's, there's just so many good choices and so many of them do come off that initial trade. That's Jekyll versus Hyde at your number one. One that I definitely resonates with me. It's my number three. Um, I didn't hold up Cat in the Box before. Here's my number two, Cat in the Box. My number one is a game that after I mentioned Wizard for maybe about a year on my, uh, my this YouTube channel as a game that I really enjoyed. Uh, the reviewer Dan King, the Game Boy Geek, kept mentioning Skull King. So I was like, okay, I, I trust I trust Dan's impressions of games. I'll give this game a try. I picked up Skull King and started playing it. And uh, Henry also, I think, had had spoken really highly of the fun times he yeah. had with Skull King. And I love the game. I really, really love the game. I still love Wizard too, but Skull King does something a little bit differently with the nil bid. We talked about nil bids a little bit today. 
In Skulking, you typically play, depends on the player count, but typically you play over 10 rounds. You can shorten it if you want. But depending on the round that you're playing, if you think, if you bid zero, if you say, I don't think I will take any tricks in this hand, and you actually pull that off, you get 10 points for every card that started in your hand that round. So in the ninth round, if you correctly accomplish a nil bid, you'll get 90 points, which means that even late in the game, um, even if you don't have a good hand, or if you can manipulate your way out of a so-so hand, you can end up getting a lot of points and catch up. Um, in the meantime, if you bid correctly, if I in late in the game, if I'm bidding, if I bid six uh, late in the game and I get that correct, you get 20 points for each of those bids. So it's still better to get uh, a higher precise bid than a nil bid late in the game. But there's a lot of tension at that lot at the end of the game where people can have big swings and catch up. So I really enjoy that. And I, I love the escalation in the game. We've talked about this with the crew a little bit. I love how you start off with a one hand, uh, one card hand. And then you build up to a two-card hand. I think that onboards people in the game well if they're trying to figure out how to bid in this game or which cards are going to show up in this in this particular uh, round or hand. Um, but it really also offers that feel of progression and escalation as the game levels up and you're getting to that fifth and sixth and seventh hand of the game and you're getting more and more cards. Uh, yeah, I I really, really love Skulking. Uh, and I, I appreciate Henry for, for encouraging me to get to the table and Dan as well. Have you all played this one? I know Henry has, but yeah. I've rarely laughed as hard in a game as one time playing this at at your apartment. Uh, it gets really rowdy when I play mm -hmm. this game. Um, but if you don't mind some randomness and um, big moments, it's it's just so fun. Uh, so I ended up picking it up off of your recommendation, actually. Uh, and our my group really really enjoys the way all of the interactions work because there's just so many different qualifiers of okay this mermaid is going to be this pirate but not this pirate but it's going to lose to whatever else so there's some really interesting choices there um and it makes the gameplay itself really fascinating what i what i really like about skull king though is at it's one of the the games you actually want to play, in my opinion, at full player count of six, because every card is in play at that point. Whereas certain other games like Meow, you actually want to play down a player or two, so that way there's some ambiguity. But knowing, okay, the Skull King is out there, all the pirates are out there, all mm. of the mermaids are out there, there's, there's some really good tension to be able to read the table that I don't think happens in lower player counts, but like Pete said, it is it is rowdy, for sure. It's a really cool game. Skull King is a game that I played a massive amount of in high school. Me and my friends would play it at lunch at, at that full, our copy played up to seven, eight players. And we would have like, that's a ridiculously high number for a trick-taking game. And like, it's so chaotic, but we had a lot of fun with it. Something that I think is really interesting about Skull King is that it's a game that was originally like just a game they played in their family and then like published. And it I feel like you can really get that vibe from the game of different versions that have been published over the years keep having more and more things added into it. So as you were just mentioning, there's like original Skull King just had like a flag trump suit and then they added pirates that beat that and then mermaid that beats that. And I feel like you can really get that energy of it's something that like the family was kind of just like playing it, making up new rules for it as they played along. And it, I like that you can feel that energy as you're playing the game. 
the the scoring variant as well because like jamie said it if you nail it you can earn a ton of points and so a bad hand if you miss your bid can feel a little punishing but if you want to play it slightly nicer there is that variant scoring which stabilizes how many points for each round it gives you the ability to miss your bid a little bit uh, like you said it feels like one of those okay we are playing with some people that didn't like the punishing aspect so we're going to put this in as well it's it's a super flexible game Henry, you even mentioned that recently if you have like a shorter amount of time that you might start not in round one but in like round four or hand four or five for sure yeah if yeah. i'm playing skulking especially with people that have played before i'm probably not going to play those first rounds of like everyone has a card everyone has two cards i might start at round four sometimes even round five or six just because like the it's still definitely a trick-taking game but there's not really any following suit when we all have a card. It's just everyone mm -hmm. plays their card and you see who wins. Whereas as soon as you have five, six cards in hand, then you start making decisions of like when you want to play what and what order you're going to play your cards in. However, I do remember one time having the Skull King in that first hand as my only card and being like, this is great. I'm going to win this trick. And someone yep. had the Mermaid and it was just like, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah, because that's like a fifty-point <laughs> bonus for them in round I mean, one, I think. Yeah. yeah, I was like, "This is the easiest bit I'll ever make." No. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you all so much for joining this discussion today. If you have any, do you have any closing thoughts you want to close out with? You've offered a lot of insights today already. If you have any other thoughts, let me know. So I would say, if you're interested in in really jumping in the deep end in the genre, um, I think that we mentioned Taylor's trick-taking table as a really good resource. There's he does teaching and review videos of a whole bunch of these games. Um, there's also a really good community for it on the Portland Game Collective's Discord server, which is full of people who play a lot of these games. They play them online together, and they'll kind of help you figure out the navigate, the importing, if you really want to try and get some of these hard-to-find games um, from other countries. You mentioned a podcast at one point, too. Do you remember the podcast? Yes, Trick Talkers. Trick Talkers. Um, yeah, it's a great podcast. Um, that will also make you spend too much money on trick-taking games. So <laughs> this is all. There's a joke in that Discord server that one of the uh, one of the uh, sections is called financial ruin, <laughs> which is a reference from the uh, the owner of Portland Game Collective, Lee, has a huge geek list on Board Game Geek of all of his collection of trick-taking games, and it's called financial ruin um, because you know you're like, oh, it's just a little card game, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, well, sure, it's small, but then you got to pay for shipping and it's it just really can get. Luckily, there's more and more coming to America. Um, it's getting more and more that if this game's really good in Japan, someone's going to find it and bring it and publish it in the U.S. for a much more reasonable price if you're willing to just wait for that. Yeah. There's also an irony that I feel like we can all see as people who do collect trick-taking games and card games is a lot of these games' components are very similar to each other with different artwork on them. Yep. Like, you can proxy almost any trick-taking game with a deck of cards if you're interested in trying something out before getting, like, a retail release of it. The, the other thing when it comes to importing is, like I said, Watch for the people that are doing re-releases. All play is great for it. They they are picking some really great stuff to bring over. Um, but the other thing is, don't be afraid to go explore the the standard deck of card games. Um, we didn't put any of them on our on our top threes because I think we were trying to do uh, 
more interesting not, like not as a bad game but as a here's something in the in the space right now but you can go back and play poker or hearts or spades and you're still going to have a great time and it takes that deck of cards that everybody has in their house um and if you are playing with people that are really experienced trick takers so long as you ask them to go easy and maybe play some open hand it'll be easier to get into but yeah, definitely don't discount just the standard deck of cards because there's a ton of games you can play out of one. You can play Haggis Spade. with a standard deck at two players. So, yeah. If Spades had come out today, it would probably be in my top three. That's very fair. It's super good. I really oh, want Henry, to try Diamonds. You're sorry, what? Diamonds? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a... So there's Hearts and Spades that are the, the standard deck... Uh, but then there were two other ones, Diamonds and Clubs, two different designers that came out in like five years of each other. And Diamonds is one of those games that even though it came out, I think in like 2009, 2010-ish, it feels like a game that just exists, that's just been around. Mm -hmm. Really, yeah. Well, thank you three for joining me today. I've loved hearing your thoughts on trick-taking games and card shedding and ladder climbing. Anyone watching this, uh, feel free to let me know in the comments what your favorite game is in this genre whether it's old, like a standard deck of cards game or a newer game. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. All right. Thank you all. Have a great Monday. Thanks. Thanks.